0: What you know good, Ann Camp? You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me. And the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right Reverend Christopher Butler. Pastor Chris, what's going on, brother?
2: Oh, you know, everything. How are you? Everything? Doing? Everything, man.
0: Yeah, man. I know, as, as we've been talking about, you got a, a busy schedule running from Congress, all the stuff that you're doing with the family. Did you get a chance with all the stuff that you're doing? To watch football this weekend, because I had a pretty good football weekend, not a perfect one. And you probably know why, but a pretty good one. How, how was your football weekend? Did you get to uh, engage?
2: Well, I did get to engage. And, you know, I have a singular investment in uh, in football. It is mm. my NFL team, which I, I had to turn it off, man. <laughs> I couldn't finish.
0: Yeah. And that's why. And that's part of mine, too. So my little league football team won. So, you know, I coached my son's team. They, they had a good uh, win. Shout out to the Smyrna Seahawks. Yes. Uh Vanderbilt won. Uh so that was a good one. But the Chicago Bears, man, we share that same loss this week. Um, uh, but but look, we have a silver lining. We know Justin Fields is gonna take over and do his thing. I have no problem with taking going slow on that. He had a touchdown. I don't think we need to rush him in. Get him right, get some folks who can block for him. That's what I was about to and say. And then bring him on in.
2: I don't want to see him run Justin Fields out there until they take care of that offensive line.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. To so
2: get the kid hurt.
0: Exactly. I'm with you on that. I'm not I'm not one of these guys who think we need to rush into that. So uh, that was my football week. Pretty good. Hopefully this next week will be even better. We'll see what happens. We got Vanderbilt against Stanford. And I know I'll be hearing all you haters out there uh, uh, (laughs) if if that goes wrong. But we'll, we'll have to see. Well, we have a special guest with us today. So as usual, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but first and foremost, like a Christian. Now, on the church politics podcast, we talk a lot about the Christian public witness, which really is the impression and the statement we make to society through our political and cultural engagement. Are we aspirational? Are we informed? Are we loving? Are we self-sacrificial? Are we courageous? Are we seeing the Imago Day in others and acting accordingly? Or conversely. Are we hyper-partisan, opposition-centered, contemptuous, self-indulgent, or cowardly? None of which are fruits of the spirit. None of which are Christian virtues. You see, our public witness should reflect the compassion and conviction of Jesus Christ. But we know that when it comes to Christian politics, unfortunately, that's not always the case. Now, me and the right reverend Christopher Butler... Try not to g- condemn large groups of people with sweeping generalizations. Uh, we try to be as precise and as nuanced as possible. But I'll be honest, you know, while we have a lot of respect and there are a lot of hardworking and good elected officials, it can be hard sometimes to find politicians who are courageous, self-sacrificial, and so many other things. It it can be hard to find elected officials bold enough. To break from partisan orthodoxy and partisan narratives, no matter how false those narratives may be. In fact, this is my opinion. In fact, I think political practitioners have confused many of them, not all of them. I think many of them have confused the definition of courage in politics. Apparently, many think courage is our willingness to bash the other side, to pile on and to take advantage of the mob mentality when it can be used uh, for our interest. A lot of folks will go hard on the other side on Twitter and on and in community uh, committee hearings when the cameras are on. But many elected officials, unfortunately, are very timid and submissive when it comes to their own party and their own party leaders, even when those leaders are being faultless, toxic and corrupt, even when those leaders are endangering our democracy. Well, those of you who have been following the and campaign and the church politics podcast for a while, uh, you know that we want to win political and policy battles because those things have real life consequences. They affect real people. This is serious business. But we think that our public witness is more important, even more important than winning. What Christians are reflecting in the culture and in the political arena is more important than how many W's we put up on the scoreboard. Now, that's otherworldly for you. Well, I have good news, though. We have found one, not the only one, but we found a politician who's still willing to stand up for what he believes is right, even if it means standing up against his party leaders, namely President Donald J. Trump. Now, when this leader stood up uh, against the big lie about election fraud on national television, I was proud. I'll tell you, I was proud to say that I was one of the people who voted him in in office. And the guy I'm talking about, our special guest uh, today on the Church Politics Podcast is Georgia's acting Republican lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan. He's a Georgia native, a former professional baseball player and an entrepreneur. And he's got a new book that just came out entitled GOP 2.0, how the 2020 election can lead to a better way forward for America's conservative party. And we're going to get into it, Lieutenant Governor. Thank you so much for joining the Church Politics podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great, man. I was blushing the whole time you were talking about me, man. I I need I need you to intro me everywhere I go. That was awesome. I, I, <laughs> the only thing I'll correct is I'm not a native. I moved here when I was a senior in high school. Uh, Got lived, you. Okay. I lived in seven states growing up, so uh, I kind of kind of made a pilgrimage all around the country.
0: Got you. Got you. OK, so so from did high school in Georgia, did college in Georgia, but not a native. We we make that correction and no, it is I, duly I noted.
1: Native Georgian. She was she was born and raised here. So
0: fair enough. Fair enough. Good stuff. Well, well Lieutenant Governor.
1: Can you do me a uh, favor? You call me Jeff.
0: OK, we can do that. It just,
1: it just make it so much easier for me.
0: Let's do it. We all have a story, right? Every politician is motivated by something. Tell me and Chris about your journey into politics. And what motivated you to run for elected office?
1: So, never grew up thinking I'd be in office or dreaming. I wanted to be a professional baseball player, uh, which I got to do, kind of, sort of. I spent six seasons in the minor leagues after getting drafted out of Georgia Tech, and I got to do everything in baseball but one really, really important thing: make a lot of money. And uh, so I was into, I went into the business world, and when my career was over, and life was good, we had a bunch of we had three kids, and life was good. One of my friends invited us to a church here in Atlanta called North Point Church. We showed up on one Sunday. Kids loved it, right? Awesome kids program. Andy Stanley just knocked it out of the park, whatever he preached about that day. So we, we, we found a church home real quick. About a year later, I walk into church on a Sunday and Andy starts this series called Recovery Road. And it just was this kind of plain spoken series, five or six part series. that just basically challenged everybody to stop complaining and start getting involved, right? Like just, Stop arguing at teachers because you're mad at education and go volunteer and help kids mentor them, right? Or pay your taxes on time or whatever. Go figure out your lane and go make a difference. And and at one point he kind of lobbed out this big idea. He's like, and you might even have to go run for office. And it was like a gut punch. I walk out in the parking lot and I look at Brooke, who never heard these words out of my mouth before, and I said, Hey, let's go run for office. And she's like, What in the world are you talking about? And I said, Well, Andy mentioned it. I, I just kind of felt like that might be a good pathway for us. And we negotiated for a couple of months, uh, but long story short, I ran for a state house seat and and won.
0: That's awesome. So it all started with with a, a sermon and a conversation with with a pastor. Chris, any any follow ups to that?
2: No, I mean I think that's a an incredible story. Uh, reminds me of another story uh, I heard of a of somebody getting motivated by a sermon. Um, but what was you said that, that you negotiated? I think it's actually really important um, for folks who are listening to the End Campaign podcast uh, to really, to get a viewpoint of what that's like in your home when you decide to do that. Because one of my prayers is that more and more people who take this approach to politics will get involved. Uh, Can you take us like a little bit inside of those conversations, what you had to consider?
1: Yeah, I think it was just trying to, you know, unpack, uh, what what was my reason for getting into politics? You know, like, I think her big question was, okay, that's great, but is this about seeing your name on the front page of the paper or sitting at the front row at some sort of banquet? You know, tell me what's motivating you. And for me, it was about putting policy over politics, right? I think I'd sat there on the sidelines and watched long enough, kind of the inefficient process of, of putting politics first, right? Like, hey, I'll vote for your bill if you vote for my bill, even though we don't like it, right? And- and that isn't necessarily a pathway forward. Uh, and so when I jumped in, it was like a complete policy over politics thing. And you know, I talk about this in my new book, GOP 2.0. Um, I really figured out really quickly once I got sworn in after I won the election as a state rep that I was a policy wonk. I could care one. I could care less about the politics. It didn't drive me uh, like what kind of you know secret deal could I cut or how could I outthink somebody and put pressure on them. It just didn't. But secondly, I didn't have any instincts. I was terrible at it. So I was like, I'm just going to get really good at the policy. I'm going to go figure out real people's problems in my district and try to put those solutions forward. So to that, that was part of that process with me and Brooke. We're trying to, trying to flesh out what was my core purpose and putting policy over politics. And to this day, when I walk home uh, or drive home at night and I walk in, I can't imagine her seeing me on TV doing, doing and saying something that doesn't jive with what we did and said at the kitchen table the night before with the kids. Right. Like that was part. of And we'll get to this later, I'm sure. But that was part of the, that was a really big part of the motivation behind the whole post-election stuff. Like I couldn't imagine sitting there eating a hamburger with my kids at the kitchen table saying, hey, it's OK to do the right. You ha- always have to do the right thing unless the president of the United States wants you to do something different. Then you can put your values or you put your, you know, your ethics on the sidelines.
0: No, that's helpful, man. Now, we started off and you noted it yourself. We started off with some pretty high praise. And the reason for that is I know. I have an appreciation, I should say. I've never been in that position, but I have an appreciation for how tough it is to go against, uh, a, you know, where your party is headed and and, and what ev- what everyone else might be doing. A lot of your peers, the positions that they've taken. And so uh, we don't say that as flattery. We mean it. I mean, that that's big stuff. Uh, the truth is, though, also that, you know, me and Chris are Democrats. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of things that uh, we all probably disagree on when it comes to politics. Um, when it comes to policy, we probably have some differences. Uh, politically, we're very co- progressive. Me, uh, we're, I should say we're in progressive circles, uh, especially when it comes to economics and things of that nature. We both run campaigns. We've both been on a whole bunch of campaigns and uh, been delegates to the National the Democratic National Convention, things like that. So I guess one of the questions I would ask you is what brought you into conservatism and why do you think the GOP is the best way to go?
1: Yeah, so I, you know, I, I grew up around it. Uh, my parents were were very conservative, so I grew up in a household. I mean, that that you know, let let's just call balls and strikes here. That influences a, a majority of us on our politics. Just kind of the home that we were raised in. Uh, I grew up kind of quietly watching uh, Ronald Reagan, right? I was a kid. I used to, for whatever reason, just used to just be inspired listen. I didn't really even know what he was talking about when he'd be in the Oval Office or at a podium, but it would just inspire me to listen to his tone and. Just encouragement. You know, I was proud to be an American when I hung up, you know, or turned off the TV. Uh, as I progressed through my life, you know, I just uh, I, I, I aligned more on the conservative sides, right? I always felt like you know a smaller government was better. I felt like less regulations were better. I felt like those in my particular circumstances aligned with conservative candidates and and leaders. Um, you know, some of the other issues, the life issue, uh, Second Amendment, some other things. I just felt like they aligned better with with where I was at. Uh, but to to the point earlier that you talked about i I never I never lost the taste of how important it was to have a conversation with people who disagreed with me right I was all like the the, the conservative home I was raised in was always like hey it's really important to always get the other side of, of every issue right it's it's really important to understand because the realities of are you you rarely wake up with all the ideas in your own mind right? you got, And you get better by asking other people's opinions. Certainly, that's what I did in the business world. I think one of the reasons why I was successful in the business world was I built coalitions within my own companies. Uh, and so I've carried that mindset into politics. And, and for whatever reason, we have lost that in, in just way too many places in politics of trying to build coalitions.
0: And I think one of the things, and Chris, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, is one of the points we want to make is, especially as believers, we cannot be so hesitant to give credit to the other side. It's funny. And we'll talk about the stance you took in a a little later in a a question or two uh, down the road. But it's funny, after you took that stance, and maybe there were one or two others that did, some Democrats came out and were like, hey, make sure you don't give them any credit, though, right? Remember all the bad stuff that we don't agree with them on. And it was like, "What, what are you talking about? Like, this is, is exactly what we should want people in the other party to do. Right. And what does it really mean to be in the other party? It doesn't mean that we don't have the same goals. It doesn't mean that we can't incentivize one another. And that's really one of the things that we've been pushing. You know, me and Chris talk a lot about what is a political party and what does political loyalty mean? Uh, I think there's a practical value to them. But sometimes it seems either even Christians can take the party conversation too far, take it to mean too much. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot assumed when me and Chris or others say that we're Democrats or when somebody says they're Republican, that probably is assuming too much, um, and so that's one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on. Or glad you're on. And Chris, what are your thoughts? Anything to add or any, uh, a follow up question to uh, Jeff just about partisanship and, and 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 what that divide means in the church?
2: No, I mean, I, th- I think so much has already been said. Uh, it 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 is the the fact that. When you say that you are a part of a a party, like I I even feel like we should uh, have a campaign to maybe put that in our lexicon that I'm a part of a party more so than saying I am a uh, Democrat. Because I think that the the fact, especially for believers, is that folks assume too much when we identify with a party because we have allowed partisanship to consume too much. Right. To to be a controlling factor uh, when it comes to decision making and shaping our values. I think that we've gone uh, the wrong way. I love what the lieutenant governor said about how he came into conservatism, because I think that your values should dictate the party you join. You shouldn't be learning your values from a political party.
0: And every believer and I love your commentary too, uh, Jeff, every believer, I think, should be doing what the lieutenant governor, what Jeff is doing. Is critiquing their party, right? There's no problem with being in a party. There's no problem with saying, I think this is the better party for this and this reason. But if you're unwilling to critique it, any thoughts on just the unwillingness we see sometimes, Jeff, when it comes to people in their parties? Unwillingness to critique?
1: Yeah, for me, it's like fingernails down a chalkboard when somebody uh, interjects their faith and tries to hijack their politics with their faith, right? It's just it's just cringeworthy uh, because at the end of the day, we're just called on to, to love our neighbor. And, and that's going to manifest itself in every which way, uh, certainly going to going to bridge across party lines. Um, it's, it's just what, what was your question? I, I I sorry. I was making my point.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. No, just it seems like there's an unwillingness um, of people in the just the political landscape within Christendom, whatever, to critique their party, to critique yeah. their side of the conversation, but, which you're doing in your book.
1: And, and it's so much simpler if you just look through the lens of being a business owner. Right. Like if you don't critique yourself. Uh, then you're never going to get better, and and that's really the big takeaways for me in this post election debacle that we kind of find ourselves in on my side of the aisle uh, is if 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 this gajillion if this tens of millions of people aren't willing to self you know analyze the things that we didn't do right and the things that we can do better then we're not going to improve. And as a business, right, like you rarely create a product and 50 years later you never made a change to it and it's never you know and it's the same product, right? You got you got to innovate, you got to strategize, you got to you know modernize and for me that's really one of the things we can do and and by the way if you use the other side of the aisle to help you do that then you become even stickier right when when people show up to the to the voting uh they're they're, they're to to vote for you right it's like oh gosh i'm only with that with that guy or girl 8 out of 10 issues but you know what man they 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 they're honest i'm going to vote for them.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's, that's very good. So if you take anything from this first segment, you cannot be afraid or even hesitant to critique your own side. You're not helping them. And also don't be afraid, as you heard us do earlier, to commend someone from the other side and say that's exactly what we want to happen. Instead of what we tend to do is try to paint the other side in the worst light as possible, even when they did the wrong thing. And that just doesn't help our democracy or our own party. That's the first segment of the uh, church politics podcast. We will be right back. We are back on the church politics podcast. We were, we are here with the acting lieutenant governor, uh, Jeff Duncan in Georgia. Uh, so excited to have this conversation. Uh, and it's been a good conversation so far, but we still have a few more questions. Now, now, Jeff, I know you don't want to go on in on your peers, and that's not what I'm trying to get you to do. But unlike many of your peers, I mean, the, the, the truth is not many of them were willing to do some of the things you did. You decided to stand up to Donald Trump which caused you, in my understanding, to forego running for a second term as lieutenant governor. Explain to the audience why you decided to stand up to President Trump and even critique Georgia's voting reform bill on, I think it was Meet the Press. Um, that's something that a lot of Republicans weren't doing. Can you talk to us about uh, why you made that decision?
1: Yeah, so my 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 early efforts were not to stand up against Donald Trump, the person. It was to stand up against what he was doing and saying. I felt like it was an unhealthy place for uh, our state, and I felt like it was an unhealthy place as time went on for our democracy as a whole. Uh, you know, the, the 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 most powerful human being uh, in arguably the world uh, sitting there, you know, openly spreading what was now continues to be uh, a, a lie. You know, there's there's been no unproven uh, uh, facts or figures to to the contrary. So. Uh, that was my first contention was I w- I just wanted to stand up and do the right thing. And I would have done it if it was a Democrat saying the same thing. I would have done it if it was an independent or, or you know, uh, certainly somebody I was very, very close to. Uh, it just was the right thing to do. And certainly, I think early on, I thought there would be this huge gathering of people behind me, right? This huge crowd that was like, oh, OK, this Duncan guy, you know, he's right. But all of a sudden, after a few national interviews, I looked behind me and, you know, the, the stands were empty. Uh, but it was fine. It was, it was the right thing to do. Uh, I got to walk in the door every night at home, sleep really well, be able to look my kids in the eyes and, you know, them them kind of high five me like, Dad, you, you know, you, you, you stood up uh, again today, uh, even though it wasn't politically popular. Now, I did not run again for lieutenant governor because I felt like I was going to lose or because I wanted to stray away. It's simply because I want to move this GOP 2.0 uh, movement in, in, in the right direction. And so I can't serve two masters, right? I can't. I can't have a conversation with the state of Georgia and convince them I should be the lieutenant governor again, and have a parallel conversation with the country trying to heal and rebuild the party that I'm in. Uh, And so I'm stepping away after I've got 15 months left, still a lot of work to do. But 15 months later, uh, I'll have all my political energies behind trying to heal and rebuild the party that I'm in.
2: No, I mean I I think that's um, that's 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 really incredible uh, that you you took the opportunity to do it. When we think about Standing up uh, for what we believe when it is not politically popular, uh, I, I think you know. I don't know if you know it, Jeff, but I'm I'm actually uh, running for Congress here in Illinois, and I'm beginning to get little taste of that uh, on the other side here. Uh, so I guess for uh, for for my benefit and also for the benefit uh, of those who are are listening, uh, you know, Scripture tells us don't take up. Uh, a building project unless we count the cost. Um, if, if, if you're willing, can you tell us a little bit about the cost, right? Like what what was it like every day? What were those pressures? Uh, what, what were some of the things that you had to battle through uh, as you did go out and do the right thing day after day?
1: Yeah, so there certainly was a toll, uh, you know, when you're trying to raise three young kids, uh, you know, who are all in public schools and, you know, you, you, you coach their teams just like you do. I, co- you know, try to coach all my kids' teams. Um, when, when you're trying to live life and an, a sitting president is tweeting at you, you know, just the most off-the-wall, outlandish, negative, you know, uh, condescending comments, which I don't even care to repeat, it definitely puts pressure on you. Uh, when your family's receiving, you know, threats daily, uh, from all different avenues, it certainly is is a pressure point, but at no point was there ever a, Hey, this isn't worth it. Right. It's just, we, we signed up to be an elected office. This wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be, but it was our moment in time to do what we thought was the right thing to do and put on display. You know, a lot of times, you know, kind of rounding this back to faith, faith without works is dead. Uh, And so, you know, I just felt like it was an opportunity for me to put my best foot forward. If it cost me my political career, so be it, uh, I would move on. Uh, Really what it's it's opened up is an opportunity to be one of the leaders in trying to heal and rebuild my party. And if done right, GOP 2.0 is not just about the Republican Party. My hope it actually helps both sides. It helps kind of redefine the rules of engagement. Because the conversations I'm having with my peers on the right, uh, there's folks on the other side on the left that are having those internal family conversations about hey look this is this is so centered around fear-mongering right we got we got overpaid consultants sitting in the room telling us that we got to put every you know we, we, we got to just play to the worst of everybody's lowest common denominator to win an election and so we're gonna do it both sides are guilty of it G, you know to, to me the most partisan thing about GOP 2.0 is the title it's really just about this reset of Expectations about who I think is the silenced majority—the overwhelming folk number of folks that sit inside the outside five percent—that are sitting there going, "I just want leadership. I just want somebody to get up and help me have a job tomorrow, help make sure that my neighborhood's safe, help to make sure that my you know my kids' schools are are, are thriving." Like to me, that's GOP 2.0. Mm-hmm.
0: You, you, one of the things I've appreciated from what I've seen, um, your interactions with media and just the conversation about what you did, is it seemed very sincere. You, you didn't become that Republican who people can just use to attack the Republican Party, right? A lot of times, and Chris may experience this too, because we critique the Democratic Party, because we have some distance from just kind of following everything it says. People will try to get us on their podcast to be the Democrats that go that just tear apart the party. It's not about that. It's really about the principles. So I've seen that in you, too. And another stance you kind of took at the same time was to critique the Georgia uh, voting reform bill uh, to say, you know, this is a, a solution looking for a problem. Talk to us about that, because that was very. Uh, uh, you know, a very divisive conversation. I had a conversation with with uh, Georgetown and some and some folks there. I was on a panel uh, and I had to tell them, look, when you guys are talking about these lines and a lot of the stuff that's going on, some of this is the county. So you're blaming it on the county when it you're blaming it on the state when it's really the county. That was kind of my critique of my side, knowing that Fulton County is the county that I'm in and that it's also uh, run by Democrats. But you were willing to say that this might not be the best for Georgia. Talk about your critique of the voter uh, reform bill as well.
1: Yeah. So I think it's important to frame, you know, kind of the whole context. One is if Donald Trump doesn't doesn't you know clamor that there was election fraud, none of us would be having this conversation. Right. It, we, we would have had the election. Joe Biden would have been certified days after the election cycle. We would have all moved on and shrugged our shoulders and, and drawn up a new play in the ground and tried to figure out how to win the next election. Right. That didn't happen. Trump obviously dug in and said everybody was evil and corrupt, and he lost because it was you know cheating. That didn't happen, but that's that's what he said. The second part was that I want to frame the context in uh, is there was a lot of thing there was there were several things that that we identified during the hyper focus the ten weeks of hyper focus we identified as there was some shortcomings in our election process. Right, just goodness gracious, there was tens of millions of people watching what are reading our laws and seeing. So there was some things and really bipartisanly, we agreed that there was some things like you talked about the lines and counting ballots quicker and getting the information out and blah, blah, blah. So we got into this conversation and almost day one out of the, out of the gates in the legislature outcomes, some, you know, just outlandish ideas about voter uh, election reform that were really just hat tips to Donald Trump, right? It was folks trying to play to their 80, 20, 70, 30 district, and trying to say, I can't, you know, you can't come up with a, a far right enough election idea in their district, right? It just didn't make sense. Um, and then it played out. The process actually worked, right? In in, in full support of it. Uh, it. It worked, right? A lot. The Democrats got engaged and certainly messaged and talked about all the craziness. I spoke up and didn't like a lot of the things that were being added. And the ultimate bill that came out had a number of bipartisan ideas in it that did attack some of those real problems that we saw that would never have changed the outcome of the election. It just made it really more efficient going forward. Probably things we should have done years ago. But then the left, right, calling, calling balls and strikes or then the left really kind of attacked and made it some of the things not what it was, right, and, and whatnot. So the ultimate kind of final synopsis of it was there was a lot of really good things in the bill, and there was a lot of things that just didn't make sense, right? I mean, like food and water eliminating, that's already illegal. You can't induce somebody to vote a certain way. But for whatever reason, Republicans thought it was a great idea to make that a talking point of which there's not enough money in the world and mail mail pieces to overcome that stigma of, you know, eliminating water when it's 98 degrees or or coffee when it's 40 degrees.
0: Yeah, um, very good point. But we'll, well, let's get to the book. Um, and I want to dig in because, again, you you have a book. It's about the future of the, the GOP. It's called GOP 2.0, how the 2020 election can lead to a better way forward for American for the American Conservative Party. Tell us about the book and tell us a little deeper about your vision uh, for for uh, your party.
1: So GOP 2.0 is the name of the book, but this is about a movement, right? This The book is a catalyst that allows me to start the conversation with America about where we think, I think we need to go along. And I'm not the only person that's out there that thinks this, right? Like, I don't want anybody listening today to think Jeff Duncan's the only person that thinks the Republican Party is not sitting in the best possible position to represent our conservative values right now. There's a better pathway forward. And so this allows me to have that, start that conversation with America. And and I really base, you know, look, the book is a one third kind of recap of all the craziness that went on, right? Behind the scenes on, on what happened here in Georgia. A third about really, you know, kind of my leadership and why I, I think I've got the credentials to talk about this going forward. But the meat of the book is really about this, this notion I call my pet project, P-E-T, policy, empathy and tone. Right. I just I think we need to do a better job as conservatives if we want somebody to vote for us is to really unpack for them why I think our policies make make sense for them and their business and their community. Um, and also, I think in the policy spectrum is Really trying to figure out the things we need to move our feet on, right? Like I'm just I'm tired of talking about immigration as a Republican, but not really talking about immigration, right? We talked about a 400 mile stretch of wall that we built. That I'm I'm a big border security guy. I think a number of a, an overwhelming majority of, of Democrats see the value in border security. But oh by the way, why are we ignoring this conversation about the 16 million undocumented folks that are here? that are a number of them are already embedded in our economy, embedded in our communities, embedded in our churches, right? Let's go figure out how to go have a conversation with those people and maybe give them a pathway to having a permanent status here. Um, I think there's other things like health care. I think we all agree that we need lower cost and more access to health care as Democrats and Republicans. Republicans have only screamed and clamored about how bad Obamacare is, but not given one single solution forward. The empathy piece. So P is policy, E is empathy. We got to stop telling people that we know what their problems are and start asking people what their problems are, right? I think that's across all kinds of lines. That's more of an inclusive atmosphere that or culture that we create. One that, you know, whether it be folks in rural America or folks in metro America or folks in higher uh, you know economic status territories or lower economic status or different educational outcomes. We got to go start understanding what those challenges are. We'll probably surprise ourselves how easy it is to get somebody to come our way politically if we truly start to understand how to shape our policies and our positioning based on their real problems. And then the T is tone, right Pretty self-explanatory. We as Republicans have done a terrible job with tone. We've taken the short-term sugar high of what 280 characters on Twitter can do in in just one minute versus what we can do over a lifetime trying to lead. So, look, I'm looking to have a conversation. I think it's going really well. I think the conversation is happening a lot quicker than what maybe people gave me credit for originally. Uh, I'm excited about where it's going. I'm not naive to think that this isn't a huge mountain to climb for me, Um, but I think it's one worth climbing. And I think it's one that we've made more progress than people probably would have ever imagined in a million years.
0: Good stuff. Chris, any follow-up?
1: Um, no, that's,
2: that's, uh, it's just very courageous. I, I, I think folks, there are a lot of folks who are afraid to be the first person to calm down. And so I, I just a, applaud, uh, the effort.
0: Good stuff. Well, we will be back on the church politics podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives? that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. We are with Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, and we are talking about his book, GOP, 2.0. 2.0. Uh, Jeff, we talked about, you know, we're trying to make sure that this show gives different perspectives. Um, me and Chris are Democrats. I don't think we're your average Democrats. I think we we have a very different perspective, but we want to make sure that we have other people, you know, in this conversation as well. Now, it, you probably know this, over 80% of African Americans lean towards the Democratic Party last I look. My question for you is, why do you think a lot of African-Americans have somewhat of an aversion towards the Republican Party? And what what might you say to encourage people of color to engage Republicans a little more?
1: So I, I think it's multifaceted. Right. So nothing's just as simple as one one crisp, clean answer. I think, as I mentioned earlier, it was the home I was raised in was a very conservative home or Republican home. Uh, and so that was kind of instilled in me kind of through, through the growing up process. I'm sure that that's probably been the case in a number of African-Americans homes just over over time. Uh, that's part of it. Right. But we all grow up and kind of independently digest our own you know, kind of values and, and political direction. Uh, I think uh, and, and I speak to this in the book. I don't think we do a very good job of understanding uh, kind of the, 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 the place in time. Uh, that African Americans sit in at you know in, all across the country, or or the, we we don't necessarily understand their issues. We think we do, but sometimes we just need to ask, right? What, one of the most eye opening experiences for me, and I talk about this, was Ahmad Arbery's uh, mom. Was uh, you know we passed hate crimes legislation last year, which I got to tell you, when this is all over with, and I'm you know nobody knows my name, and and I'm sitting there in my retirement home, uh, you know telling stories, I will never forget how I felt when we passed that hate crimes legislation, right? The process to get through the, the unthinkable mountain that we climbed to get it on the Senate floor and to get it to the house and to get it to the governor's desk and pass it. But so much of that started with a conversation I had with Ahmad Arbery's mom. And I won't go into detail because I didn't, add, you know, I don't want to share a private conversation, but understanding her perspective as to what happened to her son and understanding the angst in her voice gave me an appreciation. I never could have read on a piece of paper Or in in some sort of briefing about what the hate crimes legislation was really trying to achieve, and to me, it made such a permanent impression on me. I think when we talk about even broader issues uh, within the African American community, so much of it is about economic opportunity. So much of it is about uh, skills gaps, uh, failing schools at times, crime inside of urban urban settings. Right, like things that just every day wake you up at a disadvantage that you just want to see attention to those details. And I think we need to do a better job of not just talking about those things, but actually solving some of those problems, right? Because like if I am a, and I've said this a number of times, so this isn't like some sort of knee jerk reaction, but if I was a single mom with, um, you know, two kids and two jobs in living in, in the inner city, uh, I might communicate that, look, I'm tired of all this crime that I'm trying to raise these kids in. I, 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 need, I need safer streets. I don't care if a Republican or Democrat's in charge of that. I just need an adult in the room to go make real decisions to go make this a safer neighborhood. Or if I'm sending my kid off to a failing school that's allowed, that's, that's getting them to the tw- you know to graduate from high school four or five steps below the rest of the country, I need that fixed. Right? To me, they don't care if that's a Democrat or Republican. So to me, that's the real inroads. That really puts policy over politics, but we got to we got to live we got to live and breathe this stuff for real. I think voters uh, on all sides of the aisle, African-Americans, white individuals, Latinos, Hispanic, uh, Asian, everybody, they, they have a better sense of smell than they ever have at this point about who their leaders are.
0: Good stuff, Chris.
1: Now, so I'm sitting up here in Chicago. uh,
2: And as I, as I listen to you talk, I think one of the things that we do have to be real about is, um, how people grow up, where they grow up, uh, informed a lot of their politics, uh, vast majority of, uh, African Americans and, uh, really everybody else growing up in Chicago land, growing up in a very democratic space. Um, and I, I think about how do you do this as a pastor, you know, uh, you know, so many young people, uh, are leaving at, at like crisis numbers, actually different podcasts, different time, but in crisis numbers, young folks are leaving their parents' homes, go to school, go somewhere else and walk away from their parents' faith. Um, I also know that when it comes to winning converts, uh, we have a much, much better success rate in high school and college age, um, winning people to faith in Christ and and winning people to the church. Uh, What, does the Republican Party have to do uh, to, to to really get after that youthful group, that group of young folks who may be open uh, to considering some new ideas that are not the ideas of their parents?
1: I I I think it starts with forward-looking opportunity. They got to see a pathway for success, whatever su- success looks like in their mind. You know, we've got to get back to dreaming. We've got to get back to growing up with goals and ambitions and, and whatnot. Uh, to me, I think less government and more community is probably a lot of that answer. Uh, we don't all need to fit a certain mold, right? Like for, for whatever reason, our party has decided that it makes a ton of sense that unless you're with us 10 out of 10, we don't want you with us, right? Like that's just crazy. Like that that's inclusive 101 and inclusive, you know, is so much more than just race or gender. It, inclusive is like this mindset that says, we want to build. We don't want to tear down. And to me, that's that's the overall, you know, approach. And it's and it's a marathon, not a sprint. We seem to make this this um, community outreach effort, or I, there's probably branded under a million different terms. Uh, I, I, in these short-term sprints, like we got to win this election. and This one's really really close. We only got forty-nine and a half percent. We got to get more votes. Look, we got to have leaders that are willing to look long-term. And say, hey, you know what? I'd love to wake up in five or six years or ten years and get sixty plus percent of the vote, like a Ronald Reagan, right? Who, by the way, won by like seventeen million votes in his second term uh, in in the mid eighties, right? Like to me, that ought to be an aspiration of either party because ultimately that makes you better and it makes you closer uh, in coordination working working together.
0: Good stuff. So obviously you made a decision that wasn't necessarily easy that you, you know, uh, you said you thought there would maybe be a few more people congratulating you on it, but maybe not as many as, as there should have been for sure. How do regular people, regular voters start to create incentives that would have more politicians make the decision that you made?
1: So uh complicated answer here, but I'll try to do my best to simplify it. We, so, so there's a culture problem inside politics, right? Uh, maybe even broader sense, there's a culture problem inside this country, right? So if I was a business owner and sales were plummeting or our earnings weren't doing well or people were leaving, you kind of wake up and you realize, hey, there's a culture problem, right? Either people are just not kind of on the same page. So, you know, politicians have decided that it's that they can or figured out they can win elections with 10 second sound bites. They can win elections by blistering their opponents on Twitter or Instagram or whatever their platform is. But we as voters, we as consumers have decided that that's okay, like we'll we'll be influenced. So I talk about this in the book, the power of two, the power of three, the power of more. One, the power of two is go find a friend on the other other side of the aisle or the other side of the issue, like a genuine friend, like somebody can say, hey, I know we're gonna disagree on this, but tell me why you're so supportive of X. And I talk about a specific relationship in the book with a guy named Dewey McLean, who's an African-American that sat next to me in the house. He's probably one of my best friends uh, in politics now. He is a staunch Democrat, and I'm a staunch conservative Republican, and we sat next to each other. And by the time I was done sitting next to him, I had so much respect for some of the positions he took, and I hope he has respect for mine because we're able to have a conversation. The power of three is this notion of go go to more than just one source to get your information. But right? you can't just wake up and watch CNN and just think that's the gospel. Vice versa, you can't just wake up and watch Fox News and say that's the gospel. Right? you got to wake up and gather your information. you got to be disciplined enough to get your information from multiple places. Because then I think to ultimately answer your question, you'll t- start to show up to the ballot box with more personal accountability. You'll start to be more intellectually honest with the people that you're voting for, right? Is this person just fear-mongering to get me to vote for against the other person, or are they really putting real le- leadership on display that's paving a pathway for success for me or my family or my business? That is enticing for me to vote for. That's the paradigm shift that we've got to have. Uh, It's going to take time. I get it. But the optimist to me says we're actually closer to that point than we think because we're watched what the ridiculous nature of what, you know, just absolutely picking on people so, you know, personally or their family or their appearance has gotten us, right? It's gotten to this point of, well, that's just politics. Well, guess what? We're living out. That's just politics right now. It's 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 failed leadership in almost every direction and dimension, and it's nobody's really paying attention to what our needs are. And so for me, I think the process is twofold. One, we got to have better leaders. But the incentive is we need to get better leaders, so we need to pay better attention to who we're electing and who we're engaging. Look, you couldn't you couldn't write a rest, you, you couldn't write a game plan. You, you literally could have spent a hundred million dollars with consultants and asked them. How do you get better voter turnout? Right. Think about that. Think about what voter turnout has done in Georgia over the last two election cycles that I've been in office. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think it was like three, 3 point something million total statewide You know, voted in 20, that would have been 2014 versus 2020. Or, or 2012, sorry. Let's compare 2012 to 2020. I mean, it's million plus more voters. Because people are paying attention now, let's be more—more, you know. Let let's decipher more of who we're electing.
0: Okay, I I can feel that
1: answer there, but I'm passionate about it.
0: No, that's good. We appreciate.
1: Yeah, and and I I want—I want to make sure I weave this in. So there's a verse that that Nehemiah six three, right? So I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down, right? That was the big cornerstone kind of you know verse inside this whole recovery road uh, sermon that their series that Andy Stanley had. And that means so much in so many different ways. But it's just one of those reminders to us as believers as we're having this bipartisan conversation around, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down, right? If you genuinely wake up and you think you're doing a great work by trying to elect good people, paying attention to those folks that are maybe left behind economically or socially, loving on your neighbor, then you're just going to hold yourself accountable to that when you walk in the ballot box. And that might mean you vote for a Democrat. That might mean you vote for a Republican, but you'll have a reason why you're doing it other than just... That's just who I am, or that's how I was raised.
0: No, that's good. I mean, I would call myself, and I'm just speaking for me. I would call myself a very lukewarm Democrat. Um, but I think I speak for me and Chris when we say we care about this democracy enough to want a very strong Republican Party, uh, one that can compete for the votes of of everybody, just like the Democratic Party repeat, uh, competes for the, you know, would compete for the votes of everybody. We want both parties to be strong. Because we think that makes a stronger democracy. So in as much as you, you know, you're critiquing uh, your side to make them stronger, we greatly appreciate it. I want to talk a little bit about community uh, because uh, the brother that connected us is C.J. Stewart, uh, the, the man, the uh, Atlanta legend uh, that you guys have connected over a, 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 a sport that you both love. Talk about some of the community work that you've done with uh, C.J. Stewart and, and some of the efforts that you guys have going on.
1: So C.J. Stewart is a complete rock star. Uh, this guy and Kelly, don't forget, like the best thing about him is yes.
0: League. How could I forget?
1: Uh, yeah, Kel- Kelly. But they they do an amazing job uh, of of leading that organization, lead uh, and just uh, you know it is it is one of those things for me. I, I I'm involved in a number of things, but I am really involved in lead because I absolutely love what they're doing and how they're doing it, and it allows me to have perspective. Uh, and you know, baseball is the center of influence for that organization. They obviously pull some kids in from various circumstances, uh, you know, inside the city of Atlanta. And for the most part, I think the entire organization is, is really built out of African-American kids that really come in and he, he teaches them the game of baseball and uses that as the center of, of energy around teaching them life. And, you know, look, when I go to one of these events and whether I throw out the first pitch or I coach them up, or I've actually played in a couple of the games and I remind them every time I go I've gotten a couple of hits, uh, as a pitcher, uh, when I go, I get more out of it than they ever will. Those kids, you know, yeah, they picked my brain and they they were super impressed. I was on TV and all that stuff. But when I walk away from those and I get in the car, I'm on the phone with my wife and kids like, you're not going to believe what I learned today. Right. Like during the whole pandemic, I never in a million years looked through the lens of those kids where they were out of school for like nearly a year. Right. All, all I had was an iPad, maybe in some of these circumstances to try to connect and graduate, you know, the ninth grade or the 10th grade or try to get off to college. Uh, it was amazing to watch. CJ does an incredible job doing it. And for me, I, I hope to be embedded in that group for a long, long time.
0: Awesome. And, and what I appreciate about it, not only being in the city of Atlanta and, and knowing the needs of some of these young men that Kelly and CJ reach. I want to make sure that I say that. Um, I, I just appreci- appreciate that it's a bu- it's building relationships in a real way. Um, it's not political stunts. It's not saying, oh, if I do this, maybe this community will like me. No, it's building true relationships getting to know people and understanding them and doing the work for our kids and for the people who really need it in vulnerable communities. Any last question, uh, Chris?
2: Um, Not really. I guess I, I will ask one question, just a general piece of advice. I'll take a point of personal privilege, general piece of advice for anybody, including the, the, the guy sitting here, uh, who does want to take the leap that you did and go out and get involved in electoral politics.
1: Yeah, um, put the reason you're running over top of uh, of winning, right? So early on in my political career, I, I met met up with a guy that, that I didn't really know him. He uh, was connected by a friend, and he was he was very connected into politics. And he said, you know, um, look, it, you know, wh- wh- what's your issue? And I said, well, I'm just worried about losing and putting all this out there and trying to get. And he said, look, if you make this about the journey and not the trophy, you win every time you walk into a room and you tell them your story. So if you're committed to telling your story, every room you walk into, you will have influenced way more people than if you just sat on the couch or just went to went to work and didn't actually you know, follow through with trying to run for office. Um, but always have a reason bigger than winning an election to show up to work every day when you're running for office. That that That's my advice to you.
0: Awesome. Anything else you want to add, Jeff?
1: Well, look, it's uh, this is an amazing journey that uh, we continue to be on. You know, I, I can't figure out uh, you know, what, what God's plan is here. It's either to teach me humility or, you know, or, or, uh, continue to give me an opportunity to lead by example. Uh, but, uh, either way, we're on board, uh, for the journey and, you know, grateful for my family support through some difficult times, but, uh, you know, look, even if, uh, you're, you don't vote Republican and, and you want to see what, uh, a new pathway for the GOP, uh, take a peek at GOP 2.0, the book and, uh, see what kind of more expanded on my thoughts.
0: Well you heard it here, Ann Camp, uh, we certainly appreciate the Lieutenant Governor coming through uh, to share about his book, to share about his journey and his principles. Look, this is what we're trying to do. Uh, we will always, I don't care you know, if, if we're in what party we're in, we will always shout out and show love to people who stand up on principles. If you don't think that it was a incredibly hard decision or c- incredibly tough decision to say, you know what, I'm going to stand up even when the president might be coming at me, even where when you know folks might be threatening my family, then you need to take some time and, and think about that. If you can't appreciate that because you're progressive or you can't appreciate it for some other reason, then that is part of the problem. And so this is why we bring different people to have these conversations. Anybody we see who's making the decisions that uh, Jeff here is making, we're going to appreciate and we're going to shout them out. As always, Anne camp. there is a cross that neither political conservatism or progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ancamp, well, I'll let you.